Hello again, and everybody, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things nuclear, with an emphasis on empowering we the people to have a nuclear reaction of our own, so that we can take action against the nuclear reactors. My name is Libby Halevi, and the reason that I do this podcast is that I was one mile away from the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island when it happened, and it had an enormous impact on my life, both physically and mentally, emotionally, on all levels. This program is my citizen activist response in the wake of Fukushima, so that not only am I keeping myself informed, but I'm passing on what I learned to others with the hope that we all take an activist response one small step at a time. I'm excited that later in this podcast I will be interviewing Dan Hirsch, who is president of the Committee to Bridge the Gap, a nonprofit nuclear policy organization based here in Southern California. Now, today is July 5th, 2011. It's day 116 since Fukushima began on March 11th, and yes, it's still going on. So here's the latest nuclear news. In Fukushima, there's a question being raised as to how much of the damage done on March 11th came from the tsunami and how much of it existed because of the earthquake and existed in the 40 minutes before the tsunami arrived. Now, the stakes on the answer to this question are high because if the quake alone structurally compromised the plant and the safety of its nuclear fuel, Every other similar reactor in Japan, and indeed the rest of the world, is at risk. This has implications directly for those of us here in Southern California with San Onofre and Diablo Canyon, both built in seismically active areas. Now, the official story, of course, is that after the earthquake, the tsunami, which was unique, unforeseeable, it it could never be predicted, uh, washed out the plant's backup generators, and that's what set up the chain of events that caused the world's first triple meltdown to occur. But what if the recirculation pipes and cooling pipes burst, snapped, leaked, and broke completely after the earthquake, but before the tidal wave? There was a report that Reuters put out by reporters Jake Edelstein and David McNeil, who spoke with many of the workers at the plant, all of whom wished to have anonymity because they're still working there. All of them had the same story, that serious damage to piping and at least one of the reactors happened before the tsunami hit. Here's a quote from one worker, a technician in his late 30s. Quote, you could see the building shaking, the pipes buckling, and within minutes I saw pipes bursting. Some fell off the wall, others snapped. I could see that several pipes had cracked open, including what I believe were cold water supply pipes. That would mean that coolant couldn't get to the reactor core. If you can't sufficiently get the coolant to the core, it melts down. You don't have to be a nuclear scientist to figure that out. The author of a book, TEPCO, The Dark Empire, uh, Katsunobu Onda, wrote, if TEPCO and the government of Japan admit an earthquake can do direct damage to a reactor, this raises suspicions about the, about the safety of every reactor they run, because nuclear reactors are only as strong as their weakest links, and those links are the pipes. Something to keep in mind as we find out that more and more of our nuclear plants are situated on top of seismically active areas. Here's some intentional obfuscation from TEPCO. They explained that the air dose monitor uh, located in Fukushima was no longer operational due to contamination by the accident. That means that they have only one monitoring station to come up with what the radiation level is in the air around Fukushima and that the device is only used about 20 minutes each day. 
That's right. For 20 minutes each day, they're monitoring, and the rest of the time, they're twiddling their thumbs because they say it's not money, but they don't have qualified personnel to change the filters on the instruments. You think they might find somebody they could pay enough who wasn't interested in having children anymore who might be willing to change the filter more often just to get more uh, accurate radiation readings? There was actually a story yesterday in the L.A. Times about a group of elderly scientists and other volunteers in Japan who have said, we're beyond our child-rearing years, and we don't care if we're dosed by radiation. Why don't we go in and take the place of some of the younger workers and do some of the work that they either aren't qualified to do or they aren't willing to do? These are volunteers stepping forward, but TEPCO just can't quite get readings for more than 20 minutes a day. But then again, all of our reports out of Japan are dependent upon TEPCO and the Japanese government, and there's every reason to believe that the situation is worse than it seems, even with the more recent information in. So we're not sure we're getting the right information or even a good portion of the information. And the media is giving them a ride. It's as if the problem only involves Japan, and it's just that little country over there on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. They're not paying attention to the amount of water that's being, radioactive water, that's being dumped into the Pacific. Uh, dozens of tons day after day, as well as what may be in the, in the air currents which get brought to Earth in rainwater that can carry radiation to the U.S. soil and the rest of the world. In the last week, a Japanese whaling ship, whatever you think of whaling, I'm just reporting the story, two whales were caught that 650 kilometers from the melting reactors that showed contamination with cesium radiation, which could only have come from those reactors. So here we have another reason to stop killing the whales. One last thing on the radiation. Uh, there is a great site I discovered, alexanderhiggins.com. That's Alexander is usually spelled H-I-G-G-I-N-S. That last April, on April 6th, posted a simulation of the radioactive water plume from Fukushima. You can go to blog.alexanderhiggins.com and search under April 16th. And if anybody knows where there's an update on that one, I would love to see it. Now, in the world, um, England, huh, we thought that they were enlightened. In England, it's now been proven through a report that two days after the earthquake and tsunami in Japan and before the extent of the radiation leak was known, British government officials approached nuclear companies to draw up a coordinated public relations strategy to play down the Fukushima nuclear accident. The business and energy departments of the government were closely behind the scenes with multinational companies EDF Energy, Areva, and Westinghouse to stress the importance of preventing the incident from undermining political support for nuclear power. Among the quotes from the email and the memo sent back and forth, quote, we need to quash any stories trying to compare this to Chernobyl. Here's another one. This is my favorite. Quote, we need to ensure the anti-nuclear chaps and chapuses, they actually wrote that, do not gain ground on this. We need to occupy the territory and hold it. We really need to show the safety of nuclear, to which I respond, fine. Go buy beachfront property in Sendai Prefecture. And while you're at it, why don't you have a water skiing school set up in front of Fukushima just so the people can get the effects of that 
really healthy radiation that Ann Coulter's always talking about. Here's the other piece from England. I'll get to America shortly. But in London, it was reported that an invasion of jellyfish into a cooling water pool at a Scottish nuclear power plant kept its nuclear reactors offline last Wednesday, June 29th. Two reactors at EDF Energy's Tornis nuclear power plant on the Scottish East Coast remained shut a day after they were manually stopped due to masses of jellyfish obstructing cooling water filters. You see, even spineless creatures without a voice can stand up to nuclear and make it stick. I just put that forth in case anybody is hesitating uh, in taking a stand of their own. Now, Dan, are you on the call yet? I will keep going then with the news from the United States because we have no lack of nuclear news this week or it's turning out any week if we just bother to look. Uh, the Los Alamos fire. Well, it looks like we ducked the bullet on that one maybe kind of sort of. If nothing else, the fire in Los Alamos, which was stopped before it went onto the grounds of the um, uh, the nuclear lab there, um, it did not burn through, um, so it did not ignite or explode any one of those uh, twenty to 30,000 pounds worth of uh, nuclear irradiated materials that are stored above ground in 55-gallon drums under a, uh, under a fabric building. So that didn't blow up. That hasn't been a problem thus far. However... It doesn't mean that we're out of danger. It just means that the potential for danger has been revealed to us. What we do with that information from this point on is important. And to that, and I believe, Dan, you're on the phone? I am. Great. Um, I want to jump now away from the news in the States. I'll get back to that later because we have a very wonderful guest on the show today. Dan Hirsch is president of the Committee to Bridge the Gap which is a nonprofit nuclear policy organization founded in 1970. It focuses on issues of nuclear safety, waste disposal, proliferation, and disarmament. He has been active in addressing the contamination of the Santa Susana Field Laboratory, site of a partial meltdown in Simi Valley, just north of Los Angeles, just down the road from me. He was involved with shutting down the Hanford nuclear reactor and in stopping U.S. plutonium production shutting down a reactor at UCLA, and it just goes on and on. He's a man who has been acting on our behalf for longer than certainly I've been aware of him. And, Dan, I want to thank you for the work you've already done. Now, it's great to have you here. Now, just for orientation, you teach nuclear policy at the University of California in Santa Cruz. Just to orient us a little bit to what it is that you're doing, to whom do you teach nuclear policy what does it consist of, and what do your students intend to do with this information in the world? Well, the tapping of the energy of the atom obviously changed virtually everything about uh, human beings' prospects on this planet. We both were able to gain access to immense power that could potentially be used for uh, good purposes if we could control it, and at the same time, we gained access to power that could be immensely destructive. Uh, so these nuclear matters are an interesting intersection between fields. It involves a fair amount of physics and chemistry, at the same time um, a good deal of um, political science, uh, history, um, and 
the intersection of the two is fascinating. Um, the policies of this country are made by political institutions that are often influenced by economic forces and, and other forces, and yet they are dealing with very complex technical matters, and we try to somehow bring it all together. And with the students, are they part of this educational process? Is that what the intention is after they finish their education? Well, for students who get particularly interested in this field, I try to help them find potential employment, uh, internships, and other ways of being able to carry out what they have learned. Um, all of us as citizens need to deal with these nuclear questions, but some small subset of the students hopefully will go on and try to make a, a career out of uh, addressing these policy problems. Mm -hmm. Now, you and your organization have been extremely effective in fighting the nuclear power industry and infusing some sanity, uh, forcing some sanity on them. What, if anything, is the overall strategy that you and perhaps other anti-nuclear groups are using to, to push forward? Well, uh, part of it is simply responsive. There was an effort over the last few years to create what the proponents of nuclear power describe as a nuclear renaissance, a revival of technology. They've done so largely by trying to push the Congress into providing them with massive taxpayer subsidies, uh, loan guarantees, direct funding, um, a number of other mechanisms. And uh, there's been a need to try to present uh, to policymakers the uh, downside of uh, providing these very large subsidies. They steal resources from the renewable technologies that really could address global warming, and they also um, proliferate the ability to have more nuclear weapons worldwide. Uh, so that is on the responsive side. At the same time, particularly since the Fukushima tragedy, there's an opportunity to, in this country, begin to do what the Japanese, the Germans, the Swiss, the Italians, to give just four examples, have decided to do, and that is to wean ourselves from this very uh, worrisome technology and to replace it over time with sustainable energy. So it's partially dealing with the push by the industry for more uh, taxpayer subsidies for more nuclear power plants, and on the other hand, is trying to devise a strategy for a transition here to a clean and safe energy future. That's the vision I know that's shared by a lot of us with this program. And then the question becomes, how can we as individual citizens from the ground up start to participate and have a hand in this? How do we focus our limited energies in the place that's best going to support you in what it is that you are doing? Well, I think one thing that can be done is to communicate to Governor Brown's office um, as many times and as many people as you can, your belief that the governor should provide some leadership in making a transition here in California. Governor Cuomo in New York State has gone uh, very far to trying to close the Indian Point nuclear reactor outside New York City and, in fact, sent a senior aide to meet with the utility officials to make clear that the governor was committed to shutting that site down. He has some state authority with which he could do that. Um, 
it is ironic that Governor Cuomo is doing that and Governor Brown is not. Brown, when he was governor the first time, uh, spoke at rallies against the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant, which was then not yet licensed, and intervened as governor in the licensing proceeding to oppose uh, Diablo getting a license and put state resources into doing that. Mm-hmm. So far, he has been strangely silent uh, about the implications of Fukushima and what we should do here in California. So I think one thing people can do is to call, email, write the governor and urge him to be the Governor uh, Brown that we used to know when he was governor the last time and to do what the Governor Cuomo was doing in New York, uh, use his authority to push for an early uh, phase-out of the Diablo Canyon two nuclear reactors and the San Onofre two reactors here in California. Now, are there other levels of government where we might be able to utilize some kind of action for those people who who are connected more with a local government? I understand about getting to a state level. We do have people from other states on this call right now. Um, But is there any value, do you think, in having like a local city council or a county government take an anti-nuclear stance, declare themselves nuclear-free, or is it better for us to focus our, our energies and attentions at the higher level where, where it may take more of us, but at least we would be gathering to put, the, uh, to put some energy and, and, and get some strength behind it? Well, it obviously depends on which particular local government and also which, uh, let's say, federal legislators you may have some contact with. Um, it helps to create a groundswell of concern. Every city council, every board of supervisors that goes on record is saying that the future safety of this country is dependent on us uh, transitioning away from nuclear power to renewables helps create a groundswell of support for that. Every contact you have for the state water board try to, uh, to use their authority in whatever state you're in to um, uh, force a transition from the nuclear power plants. In California, the Coastal Commission has some authority. Our Public Utilities Commission has some authority, and our Energy Commission can provide leadership. Um, all of that helps. Uh, at the same time, most of these decisions are being made at the federal government level. And the nuclear industry, because of its campaign contributions, both to the president, Mr. Obama, is very closely tied to the nuclear industry, and to people of both parties in the Congress, the House and Senate. We have a situation where the views of the people are not well represented in the halls of power. And so communicating to your congressperson, to your two senators, to the president, uh, is also extremely important because they are right now hearing mainly from these lobbyists uh, from the nuclear utilities, nuclear industry, uh, who, in essence, have uh, big bags of cash in their pockets. They don't bribe decision makers in the sense of giving them money for their personal use, but they imply that if you help me get more taxpayer subsidies for my nuke plants, I'll help raise money for your next campaign. Uh, as has often been said, what is scandalous in Washington is not what is done that violates the law, but how much that is done that is legal is unethical. And this whole business of essentially trading votes uh, with a wink and a nod for campaign contributions by powerful entities is really uh, extraordinarily uh, troubling. But the only way that gets countered is by the public intervening, and the public has not been sufficiently noisy about the matter. 
this is great information, and now I'd like to look at it at, from a different perspective. As somebody who is newer to the uh, the nuclear discussion, I was at Three Mile Island when it happened, but I spent a lot of years not being involved until Fukushima. In going online, I'm finding, it seems like, organization after organization that are dealing with some aspect of the nuclear issue. But I am wondering, is there any kind of a central unifying organization, a policy-suggesting unit, a think tank, a mastermind of the leaders of these groups so that everybody gets on the same page and starts pushing in the same direction on the same days and at the same times with the same message? Well, the answer is no, um, and this has been a dream of all social movements. You know, the labor movement used to always talk about the one big union, um, and there are many reasons for it. Uh, some of them are good and some not so good. There is a huge coalition of many, many organizations, and they are largely on the same page. They work closely with each other. They bring their own particular resources and strengths to the struggle. And so in many ways, I don't think it is a problem that there are so many groups. I think perhaps we would do better if there were more. Uh, we certainly, as a movement, are underfunded vastly compared to the nuclear industry. We have to beg for individual voluntary donations, whereas the nuclear industry is able to essentially tax people voluntarily. Every time you turn on your light switch, a portion of the money that you pay to your utility ends up being used to lobby against your own interests. So there's not one place I can tell people to go, um, and maybe that's okay. Uh, we are a big country, and we have lots of little groups and lots of big groups who will all try to work together. Again, my my vision of this and what I would like to do from my perspective is whatever I can to focus people's attention on taking an action on a particular day, uh, understanding in a coordinated way what the issues are. Has there ever been anything like a People's Nuclear Bill of Rights or a single document that all groups can point to and pretty generally agree on saying, yeah, this is the stuff that, that needs to be done? I don't think so. Um, there are group letters and massive petitions that occur from time to time, but the position is really quite simple. I think the position that you're uh, suggesting is simply that uh, we need to move away from nuclear power. There should be no more, no new plant, and we need to phase out the existing ones in a careful but rapid way and replace them with renewables. Um, it's not much more complicated than that. Our problem is not so much what the position is. I think there is widespread agreement. I think the main problem is uh, to be able to couple that uh, public uh, view with effective action that makes the decision makers reverse course. Uh, as I say, the Italians have gotten the message well in excess of 90% of their voters um, in the election just a couple weeks ago voted um, to not restart their nuclear program. They mm -hmm. decided to rapidly phase out their existing plants. Now, the Japanese will not build more and will move quickly to uh, renewables, and um, many of the existing plants may not get turned back on, and the Swiss similarly. So the issue is why is it that reality seems to stop at the American shore? What is it that makes our country hermetically sealed from learning the lessons that so much of the rest of the world has learned? 
And just one more, and then I'll open it up for questions. And that is, uh, to what extent, if any, has the have the groups through their agendas been utilizing social media and the online world to build a groundswell to see if we can go viral and get the information out in such a way that it, it, it sparks action? Well, I think a good deal, but um, probably not enough. Uh, there are many organizations that you can get on an email list and receive urgent action alerts asking you to contact your congressperson before key votes. For mm-hmm. That is very effective and very useful, and I presume that many of the groups can let you get the same message of, you know, via Facebook and Twitter and all that. Um, I think the problem is less the use of the social media than the need for people to decide, once again, that it is important to rise up and act. I mean, nuclear power was stopped in this country in large measure because there was a huge uprising of the public. Um, There were organizations throughout the country who resisted nuclear plants and helped change the public consciousness and made it more difficult for policymakers to just do what the uh, uh, big campaign contributors wanted. So whatever the method is of communicating, we need to do it, and then we need to go to the next step, which is to take action. If you simply are concerned, that's not enough. One has to be able to get your senator, your congresspeople, and the uh, White House uh, to recognize that um, there is a cost to them if they just do what the big campaign contributors want. This is a perfect lead-in. If anybody who is on this call uh, has a question for Dan Hirsch from the Committee to Bridge the Gap, uh, now would be the time to ask it. Yeah, uh, hi, I have a question. Okay. Um, I live close to a uh, Pilgrim nuclear power plant here in Massachusetts. And I was just reading online where they've had some kind of a leak, they were saying, been for some quite time, some time now, and they can't seem to uh, locate it. Now, is that common with other plants around the country? Yes, it is. Um, a majority, considerable majority of the nuclear reactors in the United States are leaking tritium. That is a radioactive isotope of hydrogen that becomes radioactive water. And uh, the problem, of course, is that water moves quite rapidly, and that means the radioactivity moves quite rapidly. It also means that there are leaks, and it also means that if you have tritium moving, you are likely to find other radioactive material following behind. The more dangerous radionuclides like cesium-137 and strontium-90 tend to move somewhat more slowly than the tritium, but they're generally more hazardous. Tritium is pretty bad in its own way, but... Curie for Curie, the official risk figures at least, show these others to um, smaller quantities producing higher risk. But they also have long half-lives. So uh, what you're experiencing in Pilgrim is occurring throughout the country, and the reason for it is that many of these reactors have underground pipes. The pipes are corroding. The reactor folks did not spend the money to try to maintain or, or inspect these pipes, and in some cases just lied about them. Vermont legislature is shutting down the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant, in part because the officials of Vermont Yankee lied to the Vermont officials and claimed that they had no uh, underground pipes. There was nothing that could leak. That turned out they had plenty of them, and they were leaking. So this is a problem. The reactors leak, and as they get older, they leak more. And one of the great fears that those of us in this field have is uh, due to the 
decision by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is viewed by many of us as a captured regulatory agency captured by the industries to regulate, the NRC's decision to not simply shut down reactors at the end of their design life, but to extend their licenses. The industry is now claiming that reactors that were designed to run for 40 years, which are having trouble operating safely even at 30 years, can operate safely for a century. The NRC is routinely giving 20-year license extensions and maybe uh, presuming that they can give many more of those over time. And these reactors get more and more dangerous as they get older. They leak, they rust, they corrode. Um, neutron and neutrons are brittle, they're reactor vessels. And so what you're experiencing um, at Pilgrim, the whole, much of the country is experiencing and will only get worse as these reactors get older. Well, okay, thank you. That was great. Uh, Dan, is, we're right at the end of our time now, but is there a thought you'd like to leave us with that perhaps we haven't covered? Well, I think the main problem is one that I've referred to inferentially, which is that not only is nuclear power very dangerous in terms of potential for meltdowns, terrorist attacks, uh, high-level waste, which is dangerous for half a million years, um, the cost, but they proliferate um, the materials and the knowledge necessary to create nuclear weapons. And the world just is not going to be able to survive uh, indefinitely with tens of thousands of nuclear warheads. Uh, eventually, they will be used, and eventually we will have a, a catastrophe that is simply inconceivable. We have to be able to reverse things, and that means trying to reverse this nuclear technology because the civil reactors are the twin of the military uh, weapons use. You can't have one really without the other. And so... Um, we can turn this around, but it's going to take a lot of work, and people need to do that work. Well, Dan, if there's ever any coordinated action that you find out about that you would like us to participate in, would you please get the information to me? I will let my well, email list and, my Facebook know. And your listeners can also uh, just check in routinely on our website, which is www.committeetobridgethegap.org. That was just what I was going to be saying next, and we will be posting this on our site so that they can just click through and be there because uh, the information was um, enormous, it was clear, it was concise, it was to the point, and um, I appreciate having the chance to speak with you. Keep doing the good work that you've been doing for more than 30 years, and uh, again, whatever we can do to assist you, please feel free to call on us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Dan Hirsch, the president of Committee to Bridge the Gap. Um, quite a remarkable interview. So we need to write letters to people in government. And I loved his suggestions about the Water Board and the Coastal Commission. And, you know, let's get creative and find those places where we can start leveraging our voice into a larger voice. Um so let's see. I was on the American report. Um, Fort Calhoun, let's bring that up to date. You know, right now Fort Calhoun is holding. It is not yet turned into, as I saw on one site, it was called Nebraska-Shima. Um, on last Tuesday, one week ago today, the Army Corps of Engineers did announce that water releases from Gavin's Point would increase another 7% to 160,000 cubic feet per second. What that means is it was going to add another 4 to 5 inches to the river's level at Fort Calhoun and Cooper Nuclear Stations. Uh, that's information from the Corps of en Engineers and the Nuclear Weather Service. And then, last week... 
some, I have to use the term numbnuts, some idiot upstream of Fort Calhoun who wanted to drain the water from his farmland blew up half a mile of levee. Um, the, as a result of the water draining from his land, the entire river raised up three to four inches in a pulse. Now, for pulse, you can read mini tsunami because it meant that all of a sudden the water went, woo, let's get higher. And it went down in that higher three to four inches and then sped downstream, right past and almost overtopped nuclear reactor. How is that for unenlightened self-absorption? So right now, um, there is uh, a, a, no further um, uh, equipment has uh, dinged the eight-foot berm, which was patched and reinflated after the backhoe backed into it and deflated it. And now the NRC has announced that they have added two inspectors and a branch chief to the permanent two-person inspection team at Fort Calhoun Station. These people are, according to a spokeswoman, providing, quote-unquote, around-the-clock oversight. Now, oversight is a word that can be used two ways. On the one hand, it means you're overseeing something. On the other hand, oversight means, gee, I'm just not noticing it. I wonder which one the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is actually performing under. Hmm, I wonder. Ah, we did the world, we did the jellyfish. So let's move on to uh, a little bit more positive news or at least as positive as it gets around here. Uh, Japan, one of the good things in Japan is that they are cutting energy use by 15%. This is what they've been asked to do. And the government is setting the standard by setting by, by um, cutting its energy use 25%. This is to avoid rolling blackouts during the summer. So uh, the government has been mothballing some of its elevators, reducing office lighting, and setting the government thermostats to 82 degrees. The government's message to everyone as a result of this is relax the dress code. They are very formal in Japan. Even in the hottest weather, the men wear dark suits with ties done all the way up. What they're saying is that it's more patriotic to get rid of the suit get rid of the tie, go casual. What is being suggested by the government are untucked tropical shirts, light cotton pants, and even sneakers. This is like anathema in formal Japan. But this is so that they can crank down the air conditioning and save the energy. Corporate Japan has also pledged to do its part. Some firms are allowing employees to work from home. Manufacturers, including Sony and Canon, plan to introduce summer work hours similar to those being used by the Tokyo government. Other companies are extending seasonal shutdowns. Automakers plan to switch to a Saturday to Wednesday work week to take advantage of lower energy draws on the weekend. Tokyo's famed neon lights and electronic billboards have been dimmed. Public escalators stand frozen, and even street bending machines have less lighting. This is great top-down modeling for energy conservation. If here in the United States we instituted all of this right now, Imagine how many nuclear facilities we could take offline and not even notice that they were gone. Here's another piece. Oh, I, I want to give you your holistic hint for the week uh, before I go to this last piece because it plays right into what we were getting from Dan. And that is that there is a plant that can provide advance warning 
if nuclear radiation has been raised in your area. You don't need a Geiger counter. All you need is a spider wart plant. And that's spelled like spider, like the insect, and then W-O-R-T. And what this plant does, it's, it has a blue flower with blue stamen in the middle, the part that you know bees go to to get the pollen. And when it is exposed to radiation over time, the stamens turn pink. So if you live in a nuclear area, for example, within 50 miles of any nuclear plant, which of course is the evacuation area that would be recommended, whether you can get it out through the gridlock or not is an entirely different question. But in that area, if you have a spiderwort plant, just plant a whole bunch of them. Share them with your neighbors. Plant them around the plant. And then watch closely. When they start turning lavender and then they start turning pink, you know that there's a radiation leak. So that's the holistic tip for the week. And now back to a really good piece of, potentially a good piece of news, and a place where our activism can make a difference. This is the activist suggestion of the week. U.S. Representative Edward Markey, who's a Democrat in Massachusetts, has been the most vocal advocate for improving nuclear safety standards in that entire august body. In response to the nuclear crisis in Japan, he has introduced the Nuclear Power Plant Safety Act of 2011. It's H.R. 1242. And what he's asking for is the introduction of sanity to the entire nuclear situation. It calls to ensure that nuclear power plants and spent nuclear fuel pools can withstand and adequately respond to earthquakes, tsunamis, strong storms, long power outages, or other events that threaten a major impact. It would require nuclear power plants to have emergency backup plans and systems that can withstand longer electricity outages. It would require spent nuclear fuel to be removed into safer dry cask storage as soon as the fuel is sufficiently cooled to do so. It would require the Department of Energy to factor in the lessons learned from the Fukushima meltdown when calculating the risk of default on loan guarantees for new nuclear power plants. Get them in the wallet. Get them in the wallet. The bill represents a common-sense approach to increasing the safety of our existing fleet of nuclear reactors. There are 435 representatives in the House of Representatives. Guess how many have signed on to be co-sponsors of this bill? Twelve. I think our representatives deserve to have letters from us. And to that end, I have a Facebook page. If you go on Facebook and just search under Nuclear Hot Seat, it will come up. And I have posted a copy of a letter that you can just cut and paste, fill in the name, fill in your name, fill in the name of your representative, and you can send it off as an email. Because only 12 representatives are interested enough to get on this bill, that is insane. And those of us who feel a little closer to sanity on all of this, we deserve to have our voices heard, and let's do that, as Dan Hirsch recommended. Let's do that through writing letters and helping people around us to write letters as well. This is too important to not follow through on. There's more. Unfortunately, when it comes to nuclear news, as I'm finding out every week, there's more. But I think you've got enough for now. 
So this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 5th, 2011, day 116 since Fukushima happened, and it ain't over yet. Now, for follow up, for updates and activist opportunities and to get the link to this podcast, it will be posted on Facebook if you search under Nuclear Hot Seat. And I swear, we're working on the website. I just have to finish the copy, and it will be going up. That will make thing a lot, things a lot easier. But you can find the download links posted on Facebook under Nuclear Hot Seat. Until we next speak, this is Libby Halevi of Heart of Street Communications, which is the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep. Talk with you next week. Until then, take care and don't glow in the dark. Bye-bye.